Hello, my name is Ildiko. And I'm Phil. And this is the My Open Source Experience podcast. Open source is an incredibly social art. Open source is innovation. Like open source is enabling. Open source is community. And open source is weird. Open source is incredibly important. Open source is hard. Open source is engaging. Open source is collaboration. Open source is like running the show. Open source is ubiquitous. Open source is, well, my life. <laughs> and open source is not free. Before we dive in, let me give you some important reminders. People on the podcast participate as individuals. They do not represent any company or organization. All the thoughts and opinions are theirs. People share their stories and experiences, the way how they went through them and how they remember them and reflect how those experiences affected their lives, influenced their decisions and their careers back then or ever since. Welcome to the My Open Source Experience podcast. On this week's episode, Phil and I are talking to Nithyara, and we are touching on a very important topic, which is open source inside companies. We are talking about key questions and common challenges, such as how to build your open source strategy, whether you're using or contributing to open source projects, and how to harmonize that open source strategy with your business strategy and why that is super important. How to hire talent and how to educate your employees about open source, the methods, the processes, and best practices, and many more topics. Enjoy the show. Nithya, can you please um, tell us about yourself, a little bit about your tech background and what do you do? Hey, Eldiko and Phil, so good to be with both of you. Um, just a little bit about myself. Uh, I run the open source program office for Amazon and an open source program office is a pretty common uh, structure today in large companies So because we all consume so much open source. Uh, it's it's a way to help manage uh, all of the activities associated with you know using open source. My tech background, um, you know, I didn't get started in tech when I uh, went to undergrad in India. I actually was doing a business degree, and then um, it was really thanks to my father who said computer science is the future. You should, you should go get a computer science degree. And so off I went, you know, I flew from Bangalore, India to Fargo, North Dakota and enrolled in a master's program in computer science um, and did my computer science. So it was a very traditional computer science background, started as a developer, but very soon realized that just development was not kind of satisfying me. Uh, I needed to go into product management, product marketing, strategy, et cetera. And here I am many years later, um, having played kind of a role in lots of different parts of tech. So would you say that your father was right? Dad was 100% right. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how he, and this was back in the 80s that he said, you know, that's the future. You you need to do that. And um and then coming into a background, uh, coming into computer science, you know, without any background was quite tough, but um, the journey has been really fantastic. 
And I also want to make a point that tech is not just development. The tech is all of us. We need financial folks in tech. We need marketing. We need communications. We need public relations, legal. Uh, we all together create tech. Uh, it cannot be just about development of something. And um, like, do you feel that starting out in business and then going into computer science that helped you throughout your career that you kind of got both sides early on? Yes, yes. I, I have to admit that knowing why we are doing what we are doing and how that serves a problem that a customer has or a market has and uh, how to get it to market, all of those actions really help inform uh, the tech. If you're doing it without the context of the market or the customer or the problem we are solving or how we reach that customer, I think we're missing the boat. And even, even an open source project, right? Uh, you need to understand who is the user of this project, who are the ones who will contribute, how do I build community, how do I reach them? So all of these things are has has been very helpful. Yeah, building a community in particular is almost nothing about the tech, right? I mean, writing the code is the tech, but building the community is all the marketing and understanding what your, as you say, what your users and what the other developers in that community need. Exactly right, Phil. And 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 people are messy. Tech is not uh, tech is not <laughs> messy. <laughs> so you really need to uh, have. IQ, human IQ or emotional IQ to uh, do a really good job in tech. That I can 100% relate to. Sometimes I feel like that I don't miss the business degree. I miss the psychology degree to be able to do my job <laughs> in community management because, yes, human dynamics, especially in a, in a global multicultural community, that's just... That's tough. <laughs> yeah, it's very complex, especially all of the different stakeholders in open source, right? Foundations, uh, maintainers, users, companies, uh, now policy and regulators and, uh, and just so many, many different uh, important stakeholders. I'm still curious if you remember when you first learned about open source, heard about it, or or like how did you get in touch with it? Unlike uh, a lot of developers who come into it because they started a project or they started contributing to a project, for me, it was through the business angle that I discovered open source. Not surprising, right? Um, it was 1998. I was a product manager at Silicon Graphics in Shoreline, Mountain View, California. And uh, we were in the business of shipping, you know, very proprietary servers, right? IREX running on very beefy MIPS uh, servers. And the writing was definitely on the wall for SGI, Sun, IBM, HP, that commodity servers running Linux was going to be the future. And that customers wanted cheaper, faster, better, but really we're building these big data centers and filling them with uh, servers. So SGI started shipping a Linux-based server and we had to very quickly start uh, understanding what does it mean to run Linux on our server? 
Uh, how do we work with the open source community? And in those days, Linux was far behind Unix in terms of feature function. And so it was, how do we make up these deficits? How do we contribute? What pieces do we contribute? How do we support enterprise customers on an open source product? And how do we build those relationships with upstream so that we can you know, provide the kind of SLAs that customers were used to, et cetera. So I was part of that strategy team at SGI and I, I just absolutely loved it because it, it was the intersection of so many things, right? That's why we are all in open source. It's community, it's strategy, it's uh, technology, it's, um, you know, people, it's how do you kind of make this thing work? And there were very few of us doing open source in those days. So I had a chance to be a pioneer on, you know, building business models and support programs and, you know, product strategy and things like that. So that that was when I first discovered open source. So in 99, that was certainly, you know, that was leading the market, right? I mean, that was quite early. Um, I mean, I, can you talk a little bit about what it was like? So management made the choice to support Linux, which was huge, I'm sure, in its own right. Um, I mean, what what did that look like? What what were the interesting challenges and opportunities you ended up having as you were building that model for Linux and that whole product structure, right, for Linux in, in that company at that time? Some of the challenges, Bill, were... Um, you know, we could get away with really big, big uh, prizes for uh, IREX on MIPS. And I mean, SGI servers were very expensive and they were used in, you know, very high-end post-production and high-performance computing type of applications. So the, the question became, how do you make money on, you know, Linux servers on x86? Um, the, the big, the business model was one. And the second is what are the markets for this server versus our IREX servers? Um, the bigger question was how do we, you know, contribute and harden Linux such that it serves our customers better, right? Because there were so many gaps in Linux in those days, file systems and, uh, you know, so many, many areas. And then it, bit Numa, yeah, I mean there were a ton, there were a whole bunch of things. Numa in particular, yeah. and uh, so we started contributing back to um, to to Linux in those days. Um, the other big area was our customers still expected us to be kind of the front end for customer support, and we needed to guarantee that we could fix it in a certain amount of time and and provide uh, you know, the kind of support they required. But then you know, on the back end, the upstream community was, was people that we had zero control over and zero kind of relationship at that time. So we were struggling to kind of understand how do we bridge the gap between the community and what our enterprise customers needed. Um, and, and then we were also trying to figure out something like how do you market open source, uh, you know, as a company, right? Because you couldn't quite go completely community, but you couldn't completely go corporate. So a lot of us, like IBM had a campaign of um, 
open source, uh, you know, where they had graffiti on the streets of San Francisco, uh, you know, talking about the freedom and, you know, open source, right? Um, so we were all kind of discovering what does it mean to sell an open source based product. So we were kind of one of some of the first companies uh, to uh, crack the code, if you will, on commercial open source. Was everyone in the company on board from the beginning of figuring this all out, getting the experience of what it's like to participate in the community if you if you were doing that or or did you need to navigate um, internal dynamics as well? It is always a challenge uh, to navigate internal dynamics in both companies that I've been in, SGI and then later Wind River Linux, um, Wind River. When you have an incumbent product that's proprietary and a company, predominantly the company is proprietary and you're introducing a brand new open source business line or product line, uh, there's a lot of fear uh, in the rest of the company on you know, are you going to cannibalize the rest of the company? And are you doing something outrageously different? You know, how do you coexist with this strategy? And um, at Wind River also, we were competing. Wind River Linux was competing with VxWorks. And so you kind of had the same dynamics of, you know, you can only play here, but you can't play here. Uh, and so, so I think... We had to show that the world had, you know, was moving this way and we absolutely needed to have an open source and Linux strategy and that we could not, um, we had to cannibalize our own products and that we could not wait until somebody else came and, you know, took over everything. Yeah, I always draw the analogy of, you know, SGI, I think, falls into the same camp as HP and, and IBM. I was at HP at the time, right? And, and we all saw that trend. And yes, it was going to be cannibalizing, you know, our existing HP UX business for, for, for um, Hewlett Packard. But the alternative approach was what Sun did. And we see how that ended up in the marketplace. And Sun ultimately became a very small unit that is, continues to shrink inside of Oracle, whereas IBM and HP and SGI are still around. Throughout your journey, you've been uh, you've been working with a lot of large companies on on strategy and uh, and just helping with with their open source transformation. What would you say um, have been the the biggest challenge to to accomplish? You know, it, each company was was different in in its own way. When you're creating products based on open source, like SGI and um, Wind River, it's selling open source based products. And then you have companies like um, SanDisk where you had to acknowledge that for your hardware products to succeed, your open source ecosystem needed to be ready to support you know what you were doing. And in the case of Comcast, it was a completely different strategy in terms of how do we show that we are a tech company and that um, we can advance media and entertainment through technology and not rely on just off the shelf, you know, commercial products. So I think starting with understanding the role that open source and technology plays 
in your uh, business is is such an important part of the story. And often as open source, you can open source people, you can come in and forget that that there is a business and that is the reason for existence. <laughs> and you can come in and with your evangelism about open source and say, hey, we've got to do open source because it's the right thing to do. And so you've really got to understand the context in which open source belongs in your company, how it serves the business and your customers, and then work you know, within that context, right? That That's a big, big learning. And then the second learning really is that uh, most businesses tend to view open source as risk in the beginning. And then you really need to widen them uh, their outlook to say, it's not just risk, there are also opportunities in open source. And by embracing it, by knowing how to work with it, by releasing some of our own projects, we can actually create a wider opportunity for the company and the world. And then you need to learn how to work with your IP legal team and make them your friends and keep revisiting policy as the risk profile keeps changing and to make sure that we are making it e really easy for our developers and our business to work with open source. Sometimes if you just have a rigid policy set in 19, 98 and never revisit it, uh, you miss out on a lot of opportunities. So I would say those are three top ones. And then I'll add a fourth one, which is you can't just consume. You've got to work with upstream communities that you're dependent upon. You've got to give, not just take. Uh, you've got to work with foundations. Um, you can't stop at compliance. You've got to go beyond compliance and actually engage and uh, be a part of the communities that you're involved in. I mean, with proprietary software, <clears throat> we often have relationships with vendors who supply those products, right? And yet, sometimes with open source, we just consume and never look back. And we have to establish relationships with especially big dependencies and be a part of the solution and not just uh, be a passive consumer. It's a great topic, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to dig in a little bit farther there, um, right? Because it's it's very easy, and I think pretty much any company that's that's um, got any aspect of software development within their walls are leveraging open source and they're using open source. But it's a it's it's a chasm to cross, right? When you go from using and just managing the risk of using um, to actually contributing and to why, right? And and as you've mentioned, the developers will say, well, because it's the right thing to do. And I've really found that that generally falls on pretty deaf ears when it comes to management. Um, but there are many many other reasons that are very business centric, as you've kind of alluded to um, in doing that engagement. Um, and it is the foundations, it's the events, it's showing up and showing what you're doing. Um, talk, talk a little bit about maybe any stories there with getting Comcast or, or Amazon or whomever over that hurdle, over that chasm and how you bridged that, uh, and the stories and, 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 uh, you know, what, what you, what you did to get there with, um, with those companies for any given project. 
very very good uh, point um it's it's all in the details of how you execute right it it's um in the case of comcast um uh, when i came into the company we had a great policy uh, or we had a great legal team and uh you know people were able to consume open source without too much friction but there was still a lot of friction around contributions um there, there was you had to go up and speak to your ip lawyer you had to get permission from your boss uh, you had to prove that th this was not something that you could patent and there was many many hurdles and in fact the rumor in the company was you could not contribute that it was frowned upon so people had just given up or were contributing outside the system right on their own uh, without even telling their bosses, which is even more risky to the company. And so one of the first things we did was to streamline the whole process of contribution, make it very, very simple, uh, very clear on what you needed to do to contribute. We divided it into, if it's very simple, if it's a bug fix, if it's uh, a publication change, uh, you don't even have to ask anybody. But if it is a small feature function, uh, we'd love for you kind of just to tell us what it is. And, uh, you know, we'll come back and approve it within a day. If it is a larger feature function, here's why we need you to come and talk to us. Because, you know, we want to be thoughtful about how it is. And more importantly, the framing was, we want you to be successful when you contributed and not to you know, miss a certain step or do something that could hurt your career in some way or hurt the perception of the community of you. So it was really framing about, we are here to guide you, not here to stop you. Uh, and that was huge. And even the way we called the, the approval uh, body, it was called the advisory council, not the advisory committee or uh, you know, so so the language we used was to say, we are not blocking, we want to help you. And then, you know, we showed that uh, a lot of the approvals were happening uh, instantaneously or within a few days, we were tracking SLAs. And so, and we publicized those who contributed and also how much we contributed, we celebrated that. All of that really made a huge difference to changing behavior. And, um, sending a note to the manager saying, you know, we want to acknowledge that this person has contributed this and this has then helped us, you know, move this product faster or uh, help the community kind of create an, a, a certain solution that they could not before. Um, all of it helped the careers of the developers, but also send the message that we welcome contribute contributions and we will make the tactics easy to help with the contribution. I'd say that was a, a, a huge change uh, in mindset uh, in, in Comcast that we accomplished. And even just having the IP team with us, you know, IP legal team, talking to them ahead of time and saying, here's the norms we see in open source, that this is not unusual. You should not block this because, you know, this is something that is not uh, a proprietary or uh, so so we would act as advocates for open source with the legal team on behalf of the developer how was middle management 
in getting through that. Um, you know, product schedules, gee, it takes longer to get something put upstream. I got to get this thing out the door. Can you talk a little bit about helping them through the value of getting something upstream so that you're not maintaining it over time versus again, hitting that product schedule, you know, early on? That is a big, big challenge. And it continues to uh, be a challenge. Uh, I think middle managers have schedules to meet and deadlines to meet and goals to uh, meet. And anything that takes away from that is is hard. And open source, to be honest, has never has not really been easy sometimes to contribute to. You have to socialize your change. You have to wait for the right window for it to be merged in. Uh, sometimes you may not make the right timing. And so, uh, and the tooling that you use inside the company may be different than the tooling that the open source project uses. All of that adds a tremendous amount of friction. I, I must admit we've had challenges and uh, one of the ways we've tried to uh, inform the middle manager uh, of why it's important for them to make time for this is showing the criticality of their dependency and how by not making this change or by not uh, allocating time to be involved with the community that they could be hurting business continuity of their service or project or product that's based on that open source. And, and sometimes it is pointing out that if you don't get your change in, you will be left reacting to somebody else's change for the rest of the project. So you you need to get your change in and make time for this uh, and that it'll pay off you know, in the long run. The terminology we are trying to use, especially at Amazon is to say, um, this is business continuity, this is business strategic. Um, and, and, to, and, and not everything is, right? I mean, if it is core to your service or core to your product, or it's widely used in the company and uh, that you need to stay on top of, then uh, we, we advise that they allocate you know, a certain headcount towards that community. If it's a small inconsequential dependency, uh, I would say, if you have time, do it. Otherwise, you know, that's okay. Um. In talking with other companies, and I've seen this in, in my own experience as well, there's there's been a model of you've got some level of developers that are spending the majority of their time in the open source ecosystem, right? Particularly on big dependency projects. Um, and they're providing um, uh, basically grease for the skids, for lack of a better term, um, of helping those product teams know how to articulate and how to position those, those uh, changes that they need put in. Uh, to an upstream project so that it's acceptable and most acceptable. And in some cases, right, creating that because they have the personal relationships with those that are maintainers or, or code owners in particular areas, it makes it much easier. Have you seen that strategy? I mean, I, I know you've got some folks at Amazon that spend a majority of their time in, in, in the upstream. And can you talk about their role and, and what they do for the product teams uh, across that are trying to get things in for supportability and, and uh, as well as again feature enhancements absolutely i think in certain core communities um postgres comes to mind um 
and uh, you know uh, I, I'm trying to think of a few other communities, Kubernetes, and a couple of other communities that are really, really important to our services. Uh, we've often, um, you know, been lucky enough to hire develop maintainers in those communities, and their role is to mentor, you know, other contributors to successfully work with those communities, get their commits accepted. Um, it's also to do the hard work of um, fetching wood and, uh, you know, chopping wood and fetching water <laughs> and, and to make sure that the project is sustained and, and is continuing to do the testing and the documentation and other things. So, yes, the, I, I agree with you that it's uh, it's a great um, role. And. And we have to then educate the, the the managers of those maintainers to understand the talent, understand how they work, the fact that they'll be working mostly externally, and to make sure to make time and you know reward and develop those maintainers. Sometimes it's a it's a role that's so unique and different than the traditional developer role um, that that role can get undervalued or not properly protected from an investment and, you know, in headcount perspective. So that's where we proactively are trying to work with HR to see uh, if role guidelines need to be changed or uh, how do we equip managers with, um, with documentation and education on how to manage your maintainer and, and you know frequent contributor to open source. I find it to be the same for new talent acquisition as well, right? To have HR yeah. be clueful that they're, you know, this is actually another asset, a strategic asset, that if somebody is engaged in a project, particularly one that we find interesting, it's it it, it should rank them higher, right? As somebody that you would want to put into the company. Exactly, exactly. I think the recruitment process is a hard one because if you put your maintainer through a traditional developer um, yeah, process, uh, they would not make it. And so uh, we've been trying to kind of identify the right bar raisers in, in uh, open source in, inside Amazon who weigh in on you know new employees coming in. Uh, the right people for the uh, you know interview loop, uh, the right set of questions to ask, and then mapping the skill sets and the contributions of maintainers to role guideline, uh, which which traditional managers understand. Um, so and how to write a promotion document for a maintainer, right? How to uh, write a, a performance appraisal, and what are the things to look for? So those those are. They seem trivial, but but they're so, so important to managing this critical, critical talent of open source developers in the company. I also wonder how it is viewed inside a company. In your experience, like when trying to uh, advise internally in terms of how to do open source, do people only care for the layer of developers, engineers who write code or or 
is it more clear now that that you also need to take all other roles into account? And when it comes to the company investing in open source and participating in a particular community that is a strong dependency, like does the company factor in every single role or is it still more a developer uh, focused conversation and a product development focused conversation? It, it depends. Some of the more sophisticated communities in, in our company have community managers, developer advocates, uh, documentation experts, and they understand that they need a kind of a well-rounded team to make this project successful. Say like the open search team, you know, they, they really have a well-rounded team. But then there are other teams where uh, they think it's all about putting more development resources in, right? And um, But if you look at the OSPO and the open source strategy and marketing teams at Amazon and IP teams, um, we, are, we are all ex-developers or not developers at all. Some of us come from lots of different backgrounds. And um, I think there's, there's understanding that we need all of these types of skill sets and roles to make um, our participation in open source successful. Like we had said before, right? There are so many things about community that aren't developer, right? And so it's a it's a big role for if a company is going to play a role um, leading or substantially having influence within a community, you need those other characters besides just developers. You know, it's, it, 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 comes part and parcel with the activity. Exactly right. And, and you know, uh, people like Phil and I uh, play a role on the board uh, from a governance perspective and from a direction of the, the entire ecosystem and community perspective. And we need people in all of these different roles bringing in their expertise and uh, moving open source forward. Yeah. How big a role does the community part play in like when when someone talks about those promotional documents or or just a performance review like because like when it comes to uh participating in in a community that that really has the community part is really strong so it's not just writing the code throw it over the fence and then yeah I'm done and anyone who uh who has the experience of participating in open source does know that, but everybody else who did not get the chance, I assume it might be hard to introduce the, uh, this is how we also contributed to community building, for instance, and building the trust and being good community citizens. Um, is it is it hard to, to get that message across and put these processes together to have all those aspects built into them? It, it Some teams seem to do it naturally because they have such a, a large uh, open source team or um, they have a, a GM, a general manager or a leader who understands it. Um, we want to take that subjectivity out and make it consistent across the company. To your point, Hildiko, um, to make it clear that anyone who has an open source developer in their team knows how to 
correctly value becoming an Apache member uh, or becoming a PNC member, uh, going from contribution to committer to becoming a maintainer or to win an award in a community or uh, to sit on a governing board. Uh, so we want them to understand the significance of, of these accomplishments and the fact that a lot of these developers are, are really influencing uh, building communication muscles, leadership muscles, collaboration muscles that a typical developer inside the company would not. You know, when, when we look at the uh, career trajectory from senior developer to principal engineer, distinguished engineer, et cetera, some of the muscles we're looking for are communications, collaborations, influence, scope of influence, you know, all of complexity of problems that they handle. And we need to talk in those terms when we talk about open source accomplishment uh, so that it maps correctly to what we're looking for. Recently, uh, we had one of our first um, senior principal engineer promotions for an open source person happen. And this is a pretty senior level, uh, which gets a lot of scrutiny. And I was so proud that we were able to tell the story correctly in terms of company impact, uh, but also connected to uh, how this person uh, was a leader in the community. It is hard, can be told. Yeah, I, I think that's amazing because, I mean, in my experience, I worked with a lot of people in, in that management layer and just couldn't find a good way to, to get the message through like all those community aspects why why you have to participate in maintaining the the open source project isn't it just the free code that we are using in your experience how how complicated was it for you to to help companies that you worked with to transform that internal proprietary process into something that is taking open source into account and do you think you reached a point anywhere where you could say that that open source is a first class citizen in the product development workflow and it's just fully integrated and works like a charm i i don't think we're there yet um reaching the developer is easier and so i think we've done a good job of reaching the developer but we are still um, trying to reach the manager of the developer, the product manager, the general manager of a service or a product that relies on open source. And it, we will have to create specific messaging uh, to each of those groups in terms of why they should care um, or speak in their language I think one of the best pieces of advice I got was uh, you can't come in and speak open source. You've got to come in and speak the company's language, business language. Uh, that's Amazon or SanDisk or Comcast. And so talking to the product manager about what she or he are trying to accomplish and how uh, open source can play a role in that um, is this important and not just pure open source without context of what that person is trying to do. So I, I would say it's still a work in progress for the business side of the house, 
Um, I think we've done a decent job on the developer side of the house. I've also been wondering, I mean, I work for an open source foundation, so I, I view the world from a very different point of view. And I've been chewing on the on the thought, like how to help that management, a layer who doesn't have the hands-on experience participating in a community. You're very well equipped to uh, at least start those conversations, but but what's up with companies where where you have people who don't have the open source experience or or maybe those who do, they are the developers who don't speak the business language. Are there are there resources out there um, that could help, especially the management layer who just, I think they are a little bit locked out, like how we talked about, you know, even the communities, the, uh, the non-code developer roles are just a little blurry. Like you can't just point the manager there and like say that, yeah, go there, get involved, get the experience and then come back two months later and then we will talk. And if there are no resources out there, do you have anything in mind that we could create? There are a couple of things I would say. One is uh, if there is an OSPO in that company to direct them to go talk to the OSPO and see how the OSPO can intervene and help talk to the managers about you know, the value of what they're doing or how to support them. Uh, that's it's, it's a huge part of our job is to advocate for the open source developer work with HR, work with managers, work with executives to make sure that, you know, this is a conducive environment. The second I would say is, I think when companies join user groups or attend an open source conference or become a part of a community like the to-do group, for example, or if they're in the user group for CNCF or for in open infra, uh, you meet other leaders from other companies and you kind of start normalizing that this is this is the way it is. And you go back um, a lot more educated, a lot more supportive of your teams. I remember bringing my VP from um, Comcast to uh, and the leadership summit for, for open source, the LF leadership summit. I think it was in Half Moon Bay or something like that. And he went back with a completely different view of what I did and how valuable it was that I came to, you know, these types of events and, and the networking I did or the people I knew. Then, uh, you know, when he said, oh, she's going away to another boondoggle, you know, in, in some fancy place and I don't know what she does. Uh, so I think bring them with you to these events, let them hear you speak, let them see how you interact with communities uh, is one. And then the OSPO, I think, is is another one. I don't know if you um, if you have the experience of sort of converting someone who's just, I, I lack of a better word, stubborn. <laughs> In the sense that like in the in the management layer, if someone doesn't have open source experience, I assume you can't just tell them that, hey, go contribute for a month and then come back. If you can't do that or should we? I mean, but if you if you can't do that, like what can be the ways to help someone understand what open source is without ever participating? And, and I mean, if you look at the thousands of engineers in our companies, right? 
only a very small fraction really would be maintainers or consistent contributors. Majority are consumers, passive consumers at best. And uh, so most engineers never have to deal with it. And so they kind of say, why are, is this open source person getting these special privileges of being able to go to conferences or work from home or, you know, all these other things. And you've got to be able to explain that in a rational way. So it doesn't look like uh, they're creating a special class of, you know, privileges for, for those folks. Um, it really helps to have um, other uh, PEs or senior engineers who uh, say a manager or a general manager trusts and to hear from them of, of what this means and why this is significant uh, is, is helpful. So the more uh, trusted people you have in a company that can say, this is why you know we have to do this and this is how we're doing it, um, it helps. It's, it cannot be just the OSPO going out there and uh, evangelizing. We need uh, distinguished engineers and principal engineers and managers who get it, uh, communicate to the rest of the company that this is the value of uh, the work we do. Do you find that it's been helpful with, uh, you know, um, I find that Log4j as an example, really kind of shined a light for a lot of companies on the software supply chain, which is open source, um, as we've all discovered, um, and getting a handle on the management of that supply chain, because it really hasn't been a thought process. Um, you know, there are risks involved, and I think that's that's clearly been identified and acknowledged from a lot of companies. But it also means that having that context and having that contact with that supplier, uh, the open source community is also something that becomes critical to companies. Have you found that to be helpful in your argumentation to, to other managers as to why having people invested in this space is, is actually a, a strong benefit to your supply chain? The short answer is absolutely yes. Um, I think every time we've had uh, one of these incidents happen, it acts as a forcing function to pay attention to uh, the fact that we need to care for this, you know, in a more thoughtful and proactive way. So whether it's uh, all of these security incidents that have happened or executive orders and regulations or even missteps that companies uh, have, may have had, you know, there's a history of, uh, you've got to go back and say, you know, we had this misstep because we had not prepared this relationship correctly or we had not assessed this relationship correctly. And so I think it was a Churchill who said, don't let her, um, and, uh, you know, a disaster go unused or yes. something like that. Uh, I think a lot of these incidents have helped put more attention and educated more people inside the company on what we need to do, what's the correct thing to do. Otherwise, uh, I think, you know, open source just gets uh, taken for granted. Uh, it's going to just run smoothly. You know, when it happens, it happens. But, but incidents are the things that have really elevated 
the need for more open source work and investment in companies. Before we depart, uh, Nithya, can you uh, can you tell us something about yourself that's not open source related and maybe not tech related? So over the pandemic, a lot of us were not traveling. And typically an open source person travels a lot. And so here I had all this energy, you know, and time on my hands. And so I started um, cooking. I, I opened my mother's cookbook, which she had written so lovingly to me when I was a college student and had not paid attention to. And so I spent a lot of time just mastering you know, the food that was familiar to me and was part of my past and part of my history, you know, in Southern India. And it's, it opened up another world for me of the fact that this is meditative, this is relaxing, this is enjoyable. And uh, it's taught me patience, it's taught me how to relax and not be all the time, you know, wanting to do something or travel somewhere. Uh, so I would say that's that's for me uh, has been a joy. Now that now that travel is is back a little bit, uh, were you still able to keep up with with the uh, cooking and just keeping this as a as a habit that that stayed with you? Yes, at the the moment I come back from a trip, the first thing I do is to go look up a recipe I want to cook because it just relaxes me, and it's something familiar that I want to eat or share with my family. And so I'm thinking, um, creating a cookbook of some memories from my mother and from, you know, the heritage that I had. So my daughters don't forget, you know, a part of their food heritage, if you will, and that they continue to uh, keep the recipes going. If you ever decide to publish it, let me know. I will get a copy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you. Make it open source, right? So people can modify. Absolutely, it. absolutely. I think starting an open source cookbook would be very fun. Yes, I love the idea. Everyone brings their um, their cuisine from the culture where they grew up, or just something that they got into. I think that would be very fun. I think we should start one, Ildiko. We should, we should, and especially reflecting the global nature of this community, right? Yeah. Yeah. We should absolutely do that. And with that, that's all, folks. That was our episode for today. We want to hear from you. Please leave your thoughts and feedback in the comments section of the platform where you're following the podcast. This season is full of very interesting topics. For instance, open source licenses, culture within communities as well as companies, mentorship programs, open source within companies, or in other words, why does HR have to know what free and open source software is? Stay tuned because the next episode is just around the corner. Um, you know, that, that was my first experience. <laughs> oh, I loved it. Uh, Y'all had, had me telling stories that I haven't even thought about. And... Thank you so much for having me here. It was a pleasure. Like I will have coffee with the two of you any day for the rest of my life. Like. <laughs> <laughs>